If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to open the Word of God to the Gospel of Mark to chapter 3. We are continuing a series going through the Gospel of Mark. And you may recall, maybe you weren't here, it'll help you to know that a couple of weeks ago, we were in essentially the same passage, but I stated that this section of Scripture, verses 25 or 20 through 35, are something like a sandwich. Do you recall that? That at the beginning and at the end, these are the bread. At the beginning and the end, you have the themes of Jesus' natural and spiritual household. But then I stated that in the middle, we have all of this doctrinal meat that we weren't going to get into at that time, but that we'll begin to deal with this morning, where Jesus talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and he speaks about his kingdom versus a spiritual kingdom opposed to the true kingdom. And this is what we want to begin to deal with today, specifically that slice of meat that has to do with the kingdom opposed to Christ's kingdom. And then, Lord willing, in a later sermon, we'll come back to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But let's deal with this beginning at verse 22. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying concerning Jesus, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Let's ask the Lord's illumination upon us as we consider his word. Father in heaven, please work among your people. Guard us from error. Deepen our convictions concerning the things that Christ discloses here. Teach us how to wage true spiritual warfare. We ask that in all of these things, as we grow and as we are made more capable for the work you call us to, that we would give honor to Christ, that he would be glorified in the world. In his name we pray, amen. To get the most out of Mark chapter 3, to get the most out of this passage, it's going to be helpful to you to have a little bit of background, to know something about one of the key words that we encounter here. It doesn't come up very often in scripture. And this is the term Beelzebul in verse 24. Doesn't happen often, but when it does, you may find in your Bible that there is an asterisk there. In fact, you may have a different word in your translation of the Bible. You might have Beelzebub. And that's because the manuscript tradition of the New Testament that's come down to us, manuscripts simply refer to copies that were written by hand. Some of them do have Beelzebul and others do have Beelzebub. And when you have two different words occurring in the manuscript tradition, that can lead people to wonder, well, how do we know which is true? And why would the Bible, why would God allow it to be transmitted that way? The original autographs, inspired by God, written by the prophets and apostles, no errors. Transmission is prone to error, but God supervenes such that we have an abundance of manuscripts. We have no reason to doubt them. But why these two different terms? Why do they sometimes occur in these very ancient documents? The people who lived in the land of Canaan before the Israelites were there, 
They were the Canaanites, and they worshipped a whole pantheon of false gods. And the one whom they regarded as chief among them, their great false god, was called in their tongue Baal. And Baal means in their language the ruler, the king. Sometimes it's used to speak of someone who's the head of a household. And that fits with Jesus' language in verse 25 where he speaks of Satan's household. And so that was the word they used, Baal. And then Baal had different titles. You're familiar with this probably from the Old Testament that God goes by different titles like Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. And even so, the false god had various titles. And one of those is Baal Zebul, which scholars understand to mean the Lord of the dwelling or the Lord of the house. Again, that fits with the theme here, the Lord of the house. Now, for obvious reasons I trust, you understand that Orthodox Jewish believers did not like referring to the false idol by the honorific title. They don't like showing honor to the false thing. And they perceive behind that idol there is a real evil. And so as a way of showing contempt and showing that they don't believe in, and they don't worship that false idol, they would sometimes modify a term. And in this case, it's a play on words because Beelzebul means lord of the house, the king of the castle. And Beelzebub means lord of flies. It's a way of taking the god down a notch. If you can understand this, if Christians in ancient Rome, you know, had a background where they worshipped a false god, Jupiter, it would be like them coming to faith, Christians come to faith, and from now on they're going to refer to Jupiter by a different word, they're going to call him stupider. This is the same idea. They use an idiom that changes the term, and that's how we show everybody, I don't agree with that, and I think it's wrong. On the other hand, you do need to recognize the people that we are reading about in this passage, these scribes, these Pharisees, don't regard Beelzebul as entirely fictitious. They do regard this figure here, that there is a, a person standing behind Beelzebul, and indeed behind all false religion, and that is the person that's described in the Bible under various names, Satan, meaning the accuser, the devil, Lucifer, by all these different terms, who is, according to the Bible, an angel who was created upright and was the first to rebel. Now, we encounter here in Mark chapter 3, most importantly, Jesus affirms the reality of Satan, and not only of Satan, but of a whole host of malicious spirits. And it is so very important that we would acknowledge with Christ that reality and take to heart what Jesus says about the nature of that kingdom, as it were, that is in opposition to Christ's kingdom. Everything about our moment in history is shaped here in the West to lead us into apathy about that fact, to live as if there is not a spiritual realm that is veiled from our sight but is absolutely influential and at work in the world. And so this passage, the Holy Spirit is calling you back to acknowledge the reality of that kingdom that is opposed to us. But on the other hand, what it does is demonstrates powerfully that Christ's power exceeds all that of the enemy. And the purpose of seeing that here this morning is to drive you to put your trust in Christ so that as you wage war, you don't just sit back and say, well, I can't do anything. Christ does everything. What Christ does, he does through his people. Paul says that. He says, I labored more than all the other apostles, yet it was not I but Christ through me. 
So that as we participate in spiritual warfare, the way that the Bible calls us to, we do so not looking to our own resources, but that we look to Christ and we trust him, that he is able to deal with the various ways that Satan is at work in the world. These are the basic ideas that we're going to look at this morning. And as we do so, we're going to examine them under three main divisions. I'll state these again as we come to them. But basically, first, we're going to look at the power that is opposed to us. That's going to be the first the power opposed to us. Secondly, we need to look at the way that Christ's power exceeds that. So we're going to look at the power of Christ's kingdom. And then third, by way of conclusion, we're going to reflect practically on some of the ways that this intersects with our life. Again, first section here. What does this text reveal to us about the power that is opposed to us? And it needs to be underscored in the first place the figure whom, in this text, Jesus calls Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is real. When you read this text, when you read the Bible in general on this subject, Satan is not treated as a myth or a symbol of evil or as a projection of human fears. Satan is regarded as a real, actual, personal entity who has a will, who does act. There's much that is not disclosed to us about the nature of the angelic realm. And frankly, it's none of our business to know more than what God has revealed. But we should not set aside the things that are revealed. And one is that Satan is a personal being. Now, somebody could object here and say, well, why, and I've heard people make this objection. You probably have as well. Why haven't I actually seen any demons? Why haven't I directly experienced any of this? Can you imagine if the entirety of our knowledge was limited to what we had personally experienced and observed directly? We would have to doubt all kinds of things that are reasonable to be believed on other bases. For instance, this is one time where I'll ask for a show of hands because no hands will go up. Which one of us with our own eyes in person has seen the far side of the moon? And the answer, if you don't know how the moon works, it's tidally locked to earth so that you never see the far side of the moon. So why then do you believe that there is a far side of the moon? You haven't seen it. You haven't directly observed it. You haven't experienced the far side of the moon. Well, we can say at first place, credible witnesses have. About a dozen of them have gone around in a rocket ship behind the backside of the moon. And there's no reason to doubt those people. Everything else about their life would lead me to think that on that point, they're telling the truth. And we have even more credible witnesses. We have Jesus Christ and the apostles. You would have to dis vow everything that Jesus is saying if you set aside a major point of doctrine that he repeats over and over again. And then secondly, we can infer the far side of the moon and we can infer the reality of our enemy as well. We can infer, how do you know there's a backside to the moon? It seems reasonable given there is a front side to the moon. That's one way that I know it's there. When I consider other spherical objects floating in space, that seems to be how they work. They're not just half of a sphere pointed at us. And so it seems reasonable to draw that conclusion. There are many reasons to believe that the scripture is accurate and true. And so why would I set aside one area that the scripture deals with simply because I haven't observed it myself when there are a thousand reasons to take scripture seriously and scripture bears witness to the enemy? Now, I do think that there are a lot of other reasons and a lot of other forms of testimony that lend additional weight to the reality of these things. But I would submit to you that on top of these inferential ways that we know, you have experienced the work of the enemy. 
directly, personally. But it did not come in the way that we have somewhat been conditioned to expect it would be. And so your experience of demonic power did not necessarily feel like cold shivers and seeing some strange shape in the night. More often, the work of Satan is subtle. More often, the work of the devil comes in the form of sowing immoral temptation, sowing doubt on faith, sowing doubt on the value of righteousness. Here, a passage in 1 Corinthians 7. It's very brief, so I don't invite you to turn there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, the Apostle Paul is instructing husbands and wives. And listen to what he says here, because it goes in a direction that maybe you wouldn't expect it to go. He tells husbands and wives, do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, he's talking here that this married couple who has entered into covenant together should not abstain from intimacy without mutual agreement and not for an extended period of time. That it will lead to all kinds of practical problems in their relationship. But then, the direction he goes, he says, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So your lack of self-control, you have a part in this. You are responsible, you make choices. But on the other hand, it's not simply biology at play. It's not simply you as an individual dealing with your temptations. But the apostle is pulling back the veil and allowing you to see there is a third-party demonic component involved in many, if not all, of our temptations. You need to think about that, dwell on that, meditate on that, because it shifts the way that you interact with temptation. When temptation comes to you like a beautiful fruit that you think, you know, if I eat that, I'm going to feel sick, but it's going to taste good for a while. And this is how most Christians, much of the time, myself included, default. We look at temptation, we go, I know that's wrong, but it's going to taste good, and then God's going to forgive me after as if there are not long-term consequences or a pathway to apostasy involved in taking a, uh, making a routine habit of indulging sin. But imagine for a moment, you know, you're in a dark room and there's a light shining just on this delicious fruit. And then suddenly someone turns, you just thought it was you and the fruit, and somebody turns up the light and you see there's a dark figure with a black glove holding the fruit. Wouldn't you, ah, yeah, well, I don't want that because there is something malicious that hates me on the other side. And when we recognize the spiritual realm is real, I'm not saying every temptation that there is a demonic spirit, a fallen angel behind that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying since you don't know, you should treat them that way. You should recognize there is evil at work in the world and it has no goodwill towards you. That temptation that you think is going to temporarily satisfy you and bring peace will only bring a break in spiritual communion, will only sow ruin in your life and in the kingdom. And so we have to acknowledge that when we deal with this doctrine that there really is a Satan. Moreover, there's not just one enemy, but this passage bears witness to the fact that there is a host of malicious beings. The Bible doesn't tell us how many. It makes it clear that there are a lot. A lot that they can just spare a legion to deal with one person. Verse 24, you see Jesus compares that domain of darkness to a kingdom or to a household. 
And that is to say it's organized. In verse 25, Jesus doesn't dispute when they're, verse 23, when they describe Satan as the prince of the demons. And so there is a structure, there is a hierarchy. The Bible doesn't tell us very much about how that works, but it does want us to know. God does want you to know that there is organization. That reminds you that we are up against a formidable foe. God is pleased to to use what seems very weak, namely human beings, in this battle against powers that are so much higher than ourselves. Hear how it's described in Ephesians 6, verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, when it says high places, I don't take that to mean literal feet, altitude. Like, you know, if you're on a rocket ship as the astronauts are going up to that far side of the moon, they pass the zone where all the demonic beings are at. I don't think that's what it's saying. It's using our normal people words to try to get at something hard to grasp. It's talking about modality, about a higher order of being. Things that transcend our way of interacting and knowing. They are infinitely less than God, but that doesn't mean that they are not far more than ourselves. And there are some which are at the level of, say, possessing an individual, and there are others who have vast influence and power. Daniel chapter 10, the prophet Daniel is praying and waiting on an answer from the Lord. And then the angel Gabriel comes to him in Daniel chapter 10. And Gabriel tells him, while you were praying for 21 days, I was being opposed by someone that the angel simply calls the prince of Persia, or the ruler over this area of Persia, which at that time was the major superpower. And Gabriel says, for 21 days I was wrestling with that angel until Michael the archangel came to help me. There is so much there that I wish we could unpack that I have no idea how it works. People of conjecture. And we will know one day. And the Lord doesn't want us to be fixated on that. And we're warned in the New Testament not to get into long discussions about the names of angels and so forth. But it's just enough to reveal to us your foe is more powerful than you realize. Gabriel can't take him on alone. And one angel in the Old Testament takes out 180,000 Assyrians in a night. So if Gabriel can't take on the prince of Persia alone, what are we? So we're warned of this. Now, unlike human society, that kingdom of darkness is described as being unified. Jesus says, Satan is not so foolish as to be opposed to himself. Satan may perform counterfeit displays to deceive people, but the one thing he's not doing is casting out demons in the name of Christ pointing them to the true gospel. And that's where Jesus is making his argument from. He's saying, Satan wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing because the things I'm doing are pointing people to the grace of God and to acknowledge me as the true Christ. But one issue that kingdom of darkness does not have is disunity. The Bible tells you to be wise as serpents. Most frequently, serpents are not a happy image in the Bible. But here is where we can take a lesson from the playbook of our enemy. They are unified. And we can't say the same for the church at large. Even the true church. When we count out, even you just take off the table, those professing churches that don't bear the marks of the true church, even among the true church, there are many things that divide us so much that we do not regard each other with charity and we do not seek to work together as we ought to. We are disposed to criticism, to suspicion, to hatred. 
The true kingdom of Christ is not one destined to disunity, and we're called to strive towards true unity. Now, what sort of power does Satan's kingdom wield? More could be said here. The Bible does lay out more than I have time to lay out here, but I want to point out some of the key ways. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, describes the way that Satan wields power. It calls Satan, quote, the deceiver of the whole world. And the Bible in many places reveals that in a way that transcends our full understanding, the enemy is able to sow, sow, uh, sow false beliefs, to be a source of false religion, of illegitimate philosophy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, for example. 1 Timothy 4, 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Not only does he do that, but he also has a corrupting influence. I want to be careful in how I state this because I don't want to overstate it. The Holy Spirit is God. Satan is not. And that means Satan is infinitely less powerful. There, there's no proper comparison between infinity, right, and any material or any finite thing. And yet, he does have extraordinary power. And we can say in this way, the working of Satan is analogous to that of the Holy Spirit. It's less, but the work of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify and to illumine, to bring life, to regenerate. The work of Satan and of demonic power in general is to do the opposite, is to work corruption, to blind, to delude, to sow doubt, to increase death. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, lowercase g, the God of this age, referring to the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, in one sense, he doesn't need help. We believe in total depravity. We believe that nobody apart from the regenerating miracle of new birth would ever come to Christ and worship him. But what is Satan's role in blinding the world? He has sown such a situation as to make even the categories of the gospel indecipherable and undesirable to those who are lost. I'm persuaded. I'm not certain of this. I'm not sure. Oh, that's as much as I'm willing to say. I'm not sure that Satan even knows for sure who's regenerate and who's not. That he can read our minds. It seems he can introduce evil thoughts. But that doesn't mean that he knows with certainty. Maybe this is part of why he goes after everyone so diligently. But he's powerful and seeks everyone whom he can destroy. And so in sum, at this point, there is a real, there is an actual demonic realm that is opposed to Christ's kingdom and opposed to you in particular. And so in the very first place, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, be on your guard. Deal with temptation as it really is. as having bigger consequences than just how you're going to feel for the next week as being a battle between who is going to give glory to Christ and who is going to take it away. Now, it is a big question. Why does God permit Satan to have this kind of influence in the world? Why did he even make that being? Imagine the, the garden without the serpent. Why did God do this? And this is a question that I believe admits of multiple correct answers. Not just one answer. There are multiple correct answers here. One is that it is a partial and just judgment upon human beings. In the beginning, God created human beings as his exalted image bearers. 
made different than other creatures and given unique privileges, called to exercise dominion in this created world, in this visible realm, to have an authority that not even the angels had. Though we were, as the psalmist said, created lower than the angels, we had a calling here that was not theirs. To be God's representatives, his vice agents, to be like kings on earth, and to rule things well for his glory. But we have not done that, neither did our forefather Adam or you personally or me. We have not heeded the word of the Lord. What have we done? We, every time you sin, you are saying, in effect, I choose to believe Satan over God. That the wages of sin for a season are more profitable than what God would give me through a perseverance in righteousness. Every time we do that, we are taking sides with Satan. And it's insanity, and that's what sin is. It's, a, it's spiritual insanity, and yet one for which we are responsible because we cast ourselves into it. And so, when we consider that aspect of Satan's work, it is a just judgment for a time that the Lord allows us the very thing that we we chose to follow Satan's lead, well, then we get him for a leader. On the other hand, the Lord in his wisdom has chosen to glorify his attributes in creation. And by permitting there to be this opponent, the Lord has created an opportunity to display his power more powerfully than if it was just us, and his mercy. And this is what we turn to now, our second, our final main heading before we conclude. And this is to consider Christ's kingdom in comparison to that of the enemy. Look with me at verse 25. Recall there in verse 25, Jesus refers to Satan's domain as a house. As a house. Now look what he says in verse 27. Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house. So in the context, then the strong man is speaking of the devil. The house is referring to his domain, the, the realm that he is exercising control over. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now, what is this plundering of goods? The context here is Jesus explaining how he's able to exercise demons. And other people are saying, well, you're doing it by the devil. Jesus says, that's insane. Even the devil is not that foolish to give the glory to me and to point people to the gospel of grace. That, that can't be what's happening here. And Jesus says, no, this is proof that I have entered into an area that Satan was exercising control in by a maximal expression of his power in the case of demonic possession. And I am taking from him those things which he was holding in his possession. I'm plundering what he held on to. I'm taking back these people for myself. Now, when Jesus says that he has bound the devil bound the strong man, certainly that cannot mean that at this time Jesus is preventing the devil from doing any kind of evil, right? There's much evil in the world still going on. And this has bearing on, say, Revelation 20, when you read there about Satan being bound. That doesn't necessarily mean in context that he has no influence or power, but he's specifically in context prevented from doing something, and the something he's prevented from doing is keeping Christ from taking back what he has come to redeem, taking his possession, in this case, people who have been held by the power of the devil. And so that means Jesus will not permit the devil to prevent the salvation of any particular person that Christ has determined. I'm bringing them out. And it means that the kingdom cannot fail. Christ's mission for his church cannot fail to succeed if 
Christ has more power. That's the point of the, exercise, of the exorcisms. It's to prove the exceeding power of Christ in a maximal case of demonic power and oversight. Consider what it says in Luke 22. Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And I think it's appropriate. Again, I'm not certain that the devil knows who's regenerate. And if the devil knew absolutely that Peter was elect, I don't know that he'd be asking for this. I think in that sense, we can put our own name here, that every single person who seeks the Lord can expect that the enemy has asked to have them. And Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so for Jesus, it's not a hypothetical. I'm praying, but I don't know how God's going to answer. Jesus says, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. You're not going to fall completely. You'll stumble for a time, but I've prayed for you. And over every single elect individual are those words echoing through history, I have prayed for you. That is your confidence when you are struggling with sin, when you feel overcome with despair. How can God take me? How will God use me? How will he continue to carry me forward? I have prayed for you, says Jesus. I have all power. I speak to a person who's possessed. Have you been possessed? You've had it hard at times in some way. You, you struggle with sin. And most of the time when we say that, most of the time when I say that, it means we're actually not struggling with sin. That's the, that, the real problem, is that we're not struggling. But if you've struggled, and sometimes we have struggled, we've struggled with sin, and we can feel, it feels like there is just a power upon me that I am resisting. But have you been possessed? So that you couldn't even control your body, and as we read in the Gospels, children are being thrown into a fire, or thrown into water, Animals are being thrown off cliffs. That's the end goal of the enemy. And Christ says, even if that were the case, I have prayed for you. And there is in that sense, in every person being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, there has been something akin to an exorcism. There's been the Lord putting up a sign that says, no vacancy. You cannot be defeated then if you are in Jesus Christ. And we have to come back to that. Even though Christ has chosen in his wisdom for a time to honor the glory of the cross by making himself seem weak through his people and using the foolishness of preaching and these earthen vessels full of cracks that seem so powerless, he's honoring himself through this cross. That doesn't mean he lacks power. And the believer latches on to this hope. There is power and he's already proven it. And by faith I'm going to walk in that if it was all so obvious, we might not live by so much faith. But your very struggles are a reminder that the power must not be from yourself. It has to be from the Lord. And then we take that and we apply that outward to others too. There is no situation so desperate that if God wills it, he cannot deliver that person too. And we carry that into our ministry with others. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says, and this is a parallel passage. Remember the Gospels tell some of the same stories from different perspectives. Matthew 12, 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom is not something simply far off that we're waiting for. Jesus says, look, if I'm casting out demons, then that means that the age to come has already begun. God was always king. He is always king. 
But in the incarnation, God has sent Adam 2.0, the beginning of a new humanity, someone to do what Adam didn't do, to exercise proper royal authority, wearing our flesh and nature. And Christ says the kingdom is here. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Has, has the meaning of those words really sunk into you? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is the function of a gate? You children here, you know what gates are. They're to keep people out of a place that they shouldn't be. And they are for defense in the context of war. They are not offensive, they're defensive. And Jesus is in effect saying, I'm going to build my church and the world is going to be on the offensive or on the defensive because the church is going to go in beyond those gates and bring out all that I have appointed. When Jesus says that the gates will not prevail, the point is to say no one can stop Christ through his church from taking back whatever he desires. And so the point of this is not God help us, you know, like telling scary stories late at night to leave people feeling weak. The point of looking the enemy in the eye, as it were, and seeing his power is so that we are prepared to draw appropriately on the resources of Christ that far exceed it in faith. It's not to leave you in a state of weakness, but in a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. Now, by way of conclusion, I simply want to reiterate a few of these things, press them on you. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you be on your guard. I needed this reminder this week. There were things going on, and even as I was preparing the sermon, I was humbled and struck. I have definitely not been thinking of X and Y situations that represent temptations and sins for me as spiritual conflicts. I've done that, of course, many times, but I've gotten into a mindset of just thinking, this is just a frustrating thing, or this is just an area where I tend to mess up, but not recognizing the third-party component. And that we wrestle not with flesh and blood. People that you think are your problem are not your problem. They are a person to be brought out of sin as well, just like you. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What do lions do? They seek those who are weak. Now, we're all weak, but we don't need to be any more weak than we are. Don't make it any easier for the devil. The whole point is to, is to exhort you, bulk up, be prepared. Now that's not, again, that's not in your own resources. But it is to say, be ready and recognize what's going on. Verse 9, resist him, stand firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. One of the ways that the enemy tries to separate us off is to make us feel, I'm going through things other people aren't going through. Only one person gets to say that. Jesus Christ, only one person, went through something beyond anything we've known. And in doing that, he knows what everyone has gone through. Only he went through the, the agony of the cross, bearing physical but then spiritual weight of suffering to the fullest. What we go through is bad. And I say that as somebody who's lived a relatively comfortable life. But even if we were the person who got jobed, it's... You're not the only one who got Job. There was also Job. And we carry that into these trials and we say, the enemy, when he tries to make us feel alone, no, the Holy Spirit's bringing them through. He's going to bring me through too. One last passage. Hear what it says in 2 Timothy 2.24 as you consider how you wage this fight 
relative to others. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now, do you consider yourself a servant of the Lord? If you are in Jesus Christ, you are one, whether or not you feel like it this morning. A servant is not a mood. It's a calling. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are the Lord's servant. And the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, that is, eager to be in a fight, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance to a, leading to a knowledge of the truth so that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you see all the parties there? There's you who see somebody else and there's a temptation clearly to quarrel with them over something, something you think is wrong with their beliefs or their actions. And you want to get into it with them, but the Lord says, wait a second. I'm the one who can grant them release, and at the end of the day, they are in a snare of the devil. They're in a trap. They're not your final enemy. They're in a trap. And pray for me to help them. I may grant them repentance. And how will I do it? I'll do it through you, living according to the apparent weakness of the gospel. Kindness, gentleness, self-control. That matters as much today as any day. And it's related to the way that we engage online. It's related to the way that we engage with others in our lives. This satanic delusion that the way that we're going to grow the kingdom is by adopting the very attitude of the unbelieving world and the methodologies of the world, rather than this uncanny thing that actually reveals the power of the gospel. Well, you're Pastor, you're telling us to put our hands behind our back when we fight that way if we're not going to say terrible things about people and use harsh tones and all that. Yeah, I am saying put your hands behind your back and then watch the Lord work miraculously. That brings glory to Christ. When we make it about our own strength, it brings glory to us. The only way that we will experience the growing power of the gospel is when we fight in the Lord's way and lean on his resources. More could be said, but will not this morning. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us the word and revealing these things to us. We pray that you would lead us with strength through the difficulties of the coming week and months and year. But we trust you, Lord, that you are all sufficient. Help us, Lord, as often as we stumble, like Peter, then to get up knowing that Christ has prayed for us and to pray likewise for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.